Good morning. We're going to hopefully finish Luke 22 today, maybe, maybe. So a couple of announcements. Thanks uh, to David Brouch and his crew for the men's retreat that we had this past weekend. Over 30, 30 guys here. It was a great turnout, so you can chat with somebody about how that went. We've, we've got our speakers lined up for the Lay Theology Conference coming up in early February, so we'll get more details out on that soon. That's going to be a Saturday, February 3rd. Only a half-day conference this year. Going to try to run in the morning, 8.30 to, to, to just before noon, um, trying to accommodate people's schedules. I think a whole-day conference might be intimidating for some folks, so we're like, hey, it's only a half-day, half come on out. Thanksgiving Eve service this Wednesday at 6.30 and all the rest of the Advent Christmas schedule is on the, on the website. Uh, this will be my last week in here until after the new year. So Pastor Schumacher will be starting a new Bible study next week on the names and titles of Jesus. And I'll be uh, goofing around with the kids in the sanctuary uh, doing the Christmas program uh, practice and all that. If you might recall, it was a, we had a note the week at a glance about uh, the Bishop Pahola. Pujola, Pola, the guy who preached from Finland here, and he was like on trial for being faithful and all this. Um, so he was acquitted. So he finally, after dragging this lawsuit out for so long, finally that's done. So uh, we've been praying for him and great, just a great man, great faithful pastor out there. So it was great to see him uh, acquitted and no longer under that particular assault. Although as we see it happen in our country, it's just a matter of time before someone sues him for something else, but that's how it goes. Um, the, we do, we try to pray in the prayers of the church. I don't know if you've noticed this on Sundays. Um, we, as our prayers of the church have evolved in, in a particular week, if we've got like a million different people, if, we're, if we say, pray for my cousin who's in the military, pray for uh, our anniversary, pray for my, my cousin who's a shut-in. And if we try to do all of those every week, the prayers of the church get very, very long. And so what we like to try to do is, is pray for all of, these, all of these groups, but we're trying to do it in an organized fashion. So the wed especially wedding anniversaries, you don't really, if you're like me, you, you don't realize it's your wedding anniversary month until it's like already upon you. But we do try to pray for the wedding anniversaries on the first Sunday of the month, if you're wondering the rhyme or reason for that. So if your wedding anniversary is coming up and you'd like to have your names included in the list there, just let Beth know. And, uh, and we can get it in the, in the list for the upcoming, the upcoming months. So if we don't include you in there, we're not trying to offend you, unless we are, but you'll be able to tell the difference. Ladies' Advent Tea coming up on the, uh, December 2nd. You can sign up in the Narthex for that. And that's been growing with a lot of momentum. It's a fun event uh, for ladies of all, all, all ages. So um, you can sign up in different ways and learn more about that. You can talk to Pam Linnemeyer uh, and sign up in the Narthex. And last... Sanctuary decorating, it will be on Saturday, December 9th. So now that we're almost through the church year, I mentioned this in my sermon. Um, I, I never think about it until I'm, until I'm at church singing the hymn of the day or hearing the gospel lesson toward the end of the church year. M most of you or many of you are probably like, you've been, you've, you've been through this before. You know these readings of Jesus. You've heard the, you've heard the gospel lessons of the, 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 the end times parables. You've sang these hymns before, and it doesn't really shock you. But then I started thinking, what if someone's like visiting <laughs> for the first time? And like, it, even like when it comes to hymns, like for those of you who have been singing Lutheran hymnody for your whole life, like 
your, your expectation is there's going to be a small doctrinal treatise given to me in this hymn. It's going to be five stanzas long, and it's going to explain thoroughly whatever the topic is. So you know, don't throw in the towel after stanza two. But if you've, if you've been raised with a different expectation for, for hymns, and your, your, um, your stamina for just attention to the hymn is shorter, and you throw in the towel after like one stanza, Think about what that hymn that we sang today would do to you. It's four, it's, well, it's technically, I think it's a seven stanza hymn. We trimmed it down to five just to kind of keep the service a little, a little bit tighter. Long gospel reading this Sunday. But like you, you can't cut the hymn anywhere, anywhere early on because it's every stanza is it's woe and, and final judgment and despair. And but my favorite part about the hymn, though, it's like I picture it being sung by like a, a leprechaun doing a jig because it's like the da 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 da, and and fright shall banish idle mirth, and flames on flames shall ravage earth. <laughs> and, then, and then like uh, the Satan was it the those who those who scorn the Lord like uh, to Satan be delivered. It's like every like, what are we what are we singing? And why are we singing it so joyfully? But then the last days of finally, it's like, but, but I'm in Christ. Jesus has paid the, the, Jesus paid the debt I owe. And for my sin was smitten. So I need not fear the last day. I need not fear the final judgment. So the fact is, we have to let the pain, the, the, the singeing pain of the final judgment sit there. Because that is, in fact, what Jesus took for us on the cross. So in other words, if the final judgment is nothing scary, then what Jesus did wasn't that helpful or not, wasn't that impressive. So you let, the law has to speak with full force. And when you let that happen, like in Jesus himself, he's the one who's given the parables. It's not like we're making it up. So he gives this final judgment. And, the, and today with, with the parable of the talents, it is a picture of there are those who who did well with their talents and those who buried it in the ground. And it has me looking at myself and asking questions about, am I going to be kicked into the outer darkness or not? Last Sunday, the same deal. You have the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. Am I a foolish? Do I have enough oil in my lamp? Do you? Well, I'm sure I do, I think. Maybe I should check. And what are you going to check? What does that mean? So, but I, was, I look at myself. Next Sunday, same deal. The sheep and the goats. I don't want to be one of the goats who's kicked into the outer darkness. I want to be one of the sheep that gets, gets into heaven. So that the final judgment parables of Jesus has me looking at the, the people in it, and it only brings me despair. If I'm honest about my sin and the law is doing its thing to me, it's going to convict me of my non-sheepness, my goatness. It's going to convict me for burying my talent in the ground, for not having enough oil in my lamp. And so that is what, in fact, drives us to Jesus with our, with our hands empty for, for mercy. That's a different per person than standing on the last day saying, hey, I'm, I'm good. I qualified. You must be this tall to ride, and I just made it. I'm good. No, that's not the idea at all. You know, we get in on the, on, the mercy of, on the mercy of Jesus. So that all of these parables are kind of driving us to the mercy of Jesus and, I, and I, again, I've mentioned this before, all the parables of Jesus have to be understood as getting us to the cross, especially these final judgments, 
final judgment parables of Jesus because Jesus is about to be crucified. So if, if Jesus gives you a parable that seems to say, do good and you'll go to heaven, do evil and you go to hell, then the next day he gets crucified for sinners who can't save themselves. How does that make any sense? Why did he say this and then go and do that? Right? Because that's what the parables say. They, they seem, the parables strike us as looking at ourselves, trying to measure ourselves for certainty when it comes to the last day. And the point of Jesus giving us those parables is to drive us to, to despair of ourselves. My ability to save myself, there's nothing I can measure or count within myself that qualifies me for salvation. And with that, it has us looking to Jesus for nothing but mercy. So that's, uh, that's this, uh, the parable of the talents today, and uh, all kinds of fun. When you, when you read the parables of Jesus, it's, it's, it's fun, because like, we know, we're, we're, we're hearing it as those who know the cross is coming. And Je Jesus is masterful at teaching with the parable. So when you, when you read Paul, like if you, if you open up, you slog through Romans, I mean, it's very comforting, but it, it's doctrinal. There's not a lot of like, pictures being painted. There's not stories. Stories are easy to listen to. So when, you, when, you're, uh, when you're listening to Jesus, when he, he'll be saying stuff about stuff, but then when he gives a parable, he's painting a picture, and all of a sudden, we, especially these days, what's more effective? Someone ranting on a blog for 17 pages or a, a meme with like three words on it, with like Willy Wonka doing this and says something over his head, right? We're, we learn with pictures. And Jesus knows that. So Jesus paints us a picture with the parables, and then the parables impact us rhetorically. Um, that is, when Jesus gives us the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats, or whatever the parables are, the parable of the sower is a cl another classic one of these, where we look at the parable, and we think Jesus is teaching us about the last day. Like, like I Googled, what's the last day going to be like? And then Jesus gives me the answer of what the last day will be like. Jesus isn't interested in telling us about stuff. Jesus wants to actually do something to us when he's talking to us. So when Jesus gives a parable, he's not talking about something else, but he's actually giving you the gift of repentance. He's actually strengthening your faith. So the parable of the sower, for example... Again, this is early, much earlier in Luke, as we might recall, from seven, eight years ago, whatever that was. So you got the parable of the sower where the, you got the, th the four different kinds of soil, remember? The rocky soil, the, the path, and then the thorny soil. And all these soils are, are really terrible, and the seed gets devoured, and it's really... But then you got the one good soil that the, grows a lot of fruit. And so we look at it, and we say, okay, which, which, which soil am I? And we want to make sure that we're the good soil. The problem is, it doesn't matter what you want. When was the last time you saw soil do anything to improve itself? It would be pretty handy if gardens would weed themselves. But they don't. When Jesus gives the parables, he's actually tilling the soil. He's fertilizing the soil. He's weeding the soil. He's, he's doing the stuff to us to make us the good soil. Same here with these, last, with these last day parables. He's turning us from our heart and from bearing the, bearing the talent in the ground, from, uh, from not having enough oil in our lamps, from being the goats, 
from thinking we can stand on our own merits. He's turning us from ourselves to him, giving us the gift of faith and repentance. But we're, we just don't think about that. When, we, when we're reading the gospels, we're always thinking he's telling us about something else. But just always remember, Jesus is, the, the, God's word is living and active. So it's doing stuff to us as he's talking to us. And he continues to speak to us still today through his preach word. Okay, that's the last day. Let me get to what, Luke 22, uh, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So remember the context, it is, it is Good Friday. As, as soon as the sun set on what we would account as Monday Thursday, uh, it becomes Good Friday. So Jesus um, instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. Uh, Judas set out to, to go betray him. He did a little bit of teaching there. He, he told Peter how he's going to betray him. And then they head out for the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I think it's like through the Kidron Valley, up, up a, down a hill, out of Jerusalem, up a hill. And, and that's kind of where Jesus is hanging out. And let's hear it from, uh, so this is Luke, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. But Luke 22, uh, verse 39 is where we'll pick up today, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. Oh, but just to give us, let's get a running start here. He, remember the, uh, Jesus says in verse 35, I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals. And did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has the money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So, we, so this, Jesus is about to fulfill this being numbered with a, counted as a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He's nailed to the cross, which is only reserved for the most notorious of, the most terrible of sinners. And that's where he's, he's about to go. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And, they, and he said to them, it's enough. Like, if you stop with the swords, he says. But they're, they're in the, so in, in the mind of the disciples, because this is gonna come into play a couple times here, they, they know something's up. I didn't think about this till the men's retreat this past weekend when Pastor Boyle was saying how, like, how kids pick up on, um, like, if dad is, if he's afraid, that's fine, but don't let your kids see you be afraid, <laughs> right? Don't let your wife see you be afraid. You have to be strong because if you are a little bit afraid, your kids are 15 times what you are, Right? It's not to say we're trying to deceive them, but like the fact is we have to be the strong ones. We're, we're given to be the strong ones. But how much better, not just when dad's pretending, but when dad actually is not afraid of whatever the problem is, right? It's like whenever there's a spider in the living room and all of my, every female in my house jumps on top of something and runs away and I get to walk in with my shoes, step on the spider. So like, if I'm naturally not afraid, Actually, I'm pretty afraid of spiders, but that was a bad example. For me. <laughs> but like, if, if I'm not afraid, then they're, then they're set free to not be afraid either. But if I'm afraid, they sense it. Now I use that, as a, I use that, that picture because what's going on in Jesus's mind isn't fear or anxiety, because we, we kind of often attach those things to sin, but he is, he's, he's building up in agony of what's about to happen to him. The picture is always, as Jesus is going through his ministry, touching, like healing the lepers, uh, he's taking their, their diseases upon himself. The Isaiah, the Isaiah 52 and 53 picture is, he's taken our sorrows on himself. 
So it's like as he's going around healing people, he's taking it like that one giant on the green mile, that, that gigantic guy who like, you ever see that movie? Yeah, like he, yeah. he like sucks the cancer out of people and he takes it into himself. So with Jesus, he, as, he's, as he's healing people, he's getting more worn down. So now as his ministry is about to end, he's about to go to the cross. He's certainly worn down. He knows what's coming. And he's agonizing. The text says he, is, he has agony for it. And he's praying. He's about to pray that the cup would pass from him. So there's, there's, there's dread. There is this, I, mean, I, I don't know a better word than, than anxiety, just from our perspective, but knowing that Jesus wouldn't have it in the same way that we have it. But in some sense, there's like, I don't, I'd rather not be crucified and, and suffer the wrath of God later on today. I think that would have been contagious. It's because the disciples who thought, remember, remember like just before this, um, before they came into Jerusalem, it's not, it's not in, is it? No, it's in John's gospel. Just before they come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what had just happened? Raising of Lazarus, which is a pretty big deal, right? Dead guy dead for three days, multiple days, and now he's, he's, he's brought forth. It's very shocking. This is direct prophetic fulfillment of the Messiah. He's healing the blind. He's healing lepers. I mean, he is clearly doing all these messianic things, and they know something is coming. Jesus has specifically avoided going to Jerusalem many times. So he's always going to different, different places. He went back to Jerusalem early on in the ministry. And once he started getting enough recognition that every time he'd go anywhere, the Pharisees were trying to trap him, it just wasn't fun anymore. That's why I like the stars don't like going to just a random Costco because everybody wants an autograph. So Jesus stopped going. <laughs> it's a bad analogy. But so, but so Jesus is, he's, he's avoiding Jerusalem until he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration. He set, the text says he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And then he says, okay, it's like, here we go. So now he's starting to build up steam and you can, the disciples are picking up on it. He's fulfilling all these prophecies. And now he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling that prophecy too. And the disciples gotta be thinking something big is about to happen. And it's just, it's, it's, um, it's starting to wear on them because they don't know exactly what. They don't, Jesus seems to be pretty not himself lately. So he's despairing in some way or he's, he's, he's agonizing is the text that the Bible uses. The disciples are picking up that. They get their swords ready because they're thinking messianic power. So they're getting all ready and they're on, they're on this emotional roller coaster, which is why I think they keep falling asleep in the garden here, which is about to happen. So verse 39, he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right, let's 
break that down a little bit. So he came out and went as was his custom. So he had been going to pray in the Mount of Olives lately since he's been in this area. He's been going over there, which is why Judas knew where to find him. Because remember, Judas like left during the dinner, during the Last Supper, and then he comes back with like all the guys with pitchforks that, to arrest Jesus. That Jesus, he knew right where he's going to be. He's been going there. He's in the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to what we know to be the Garden of Gethsemane, the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, same word as the Lord's Prayer. In the same way, he teach, Jesus had taught them to pray, lead us not into temptation. We know just before this, he had warned them that Satan wants to sift them like wheat, and they're, so they're going to be tempted in some way. Um, so in this way, and what's, he's also going to echo it when he says, not my will, but your will be done. We have this Jesus, Jesus' own prayer here is informed by the Lord's Prayer. That's my, my first question on the handout there, is the, Jesus, who's, who's taught us to pray, uses the Lord's Prayer's basic pillars in his own personal prayers. And we frankly do the same. So every... Every issue we could possibly pray for is covered in the Lord's Prayer petitions, which is why it's super, it's like easy for us to just pray the Lord's Prayer. But some of these key things like not my will, but your will be done are helpful things to bring into our, into our prayers that we'd be led out of temptation. And I put it, the catechism in our handout for us. When, he, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, what's he, what's, What's the problem? What, what, are they, what are they being tempted by? And what, what are they praying against? Well, as we learn in the catechism, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. So no, you might be thinking that uh, G- Jesus learned very well the small catechism from Luther, but it's actually the other way around. <laughs> so when Luther is certainly informed by the Lord Jesus, and it's especially here. So we, this guarding, being guarded against the, de- the damage, the temptation brought by the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, is what he's telling the, the disciples to be on guard against because... The problem, the problem of our sin is it leads us into false belief, which is ultimately leading us away from Christ. So to not believe in who Jesus says he is leads us into this eternal damnation. To despair, this hopeless picture, my sin can lead me into despair. You see it all the time with a person uh, in other great shame and vice. Our sin actually hurts us. It actually does damage to us and to others. So that, yeah, Jesus forgives our sins, but then we're stuck with the consequences, and the consequences of our sin can often be so great in despair and shame that it just drives a person darker and darker into the depths, sometimes even towards suicide. You have Christians driven to suicide. It's because the devil knows what he's doing. They've done some tremendous shame they feel this despair. There's no way out. And that's what, in this sense, that's why we pray against temptation. Not just because, like, sin, we don't want to, if all sin is, is like a list of things that we're trying to avoid because they're on, they're, we don't want to be on Jesus' naughty list. 
And well, we already know he already died for all that stuff. So if my motivation is just to like keep the rules for the sake of keeping the rules, that's, that's not really, what's the point? If I actually believe in Jesus, then I can just sin all the more that grace may abound, as Paul says. But the problem is, as Luther recognizes, and obviously Jesus too, our sin is actually bad for us. The reason why he says it's wrong is because it actually hurts us. It actually drives us. And while he, he forgives the sins, and in many times often might even spare us from the great shame and vice that we deserve, typically though, our sin gets us into trouble. It destroys marriages, it destroys families, it hurts, hurts us, right? It hurts others. So that's what we're praying. That's why we're praying this way. And the disciples in this particular situation, what's the temptation that they're being, that they're being tempted by? This kind of, we can speculate here because he doesn't say. He just says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What do you think? What's the, what's the clear and present danger? What's coming? Yeah. Yeah. To flip to Judas' side, to, which is ultimately to not see Jesus as the Savior, but it's just some guy who did some cool stuff, but he's not the Messiah. And if Jesus is not the Messiah, is that not the greatest, the greatest of all despairs is to, to, to lose your Savior, to, to lose the, the sure foundation that you're standing on, then everything comes crashing down, which was how the, how the ladies would have felt on Easter morning, by the way. Remember, like, because they, they go to the tomb to anoint a body. Jesus was, had died. So the hope was gone. And now they have nothing but despair. So to, to pray against to, to the strength of faith in the face of that temptation that Jesus is not, he's not acting like the, the God that I want him to be. If Jesus is my God, he is going to destroy Judas and the soldiers and win the day. If Jesus is my God, he's going to take away the cancer. Am I even going to get the cancer? If Jesus is my God, I'm going to get the promotion, get the job. Whatever the, whatever the thing is on my list that, I, that, I, that I'm wanting to occur right now, if I, I hold up God to, with my expectations and demands, and if he doesn't come through, then that I'm tempted to think he's not there or doesn't exist. That's a great temptation for the sinful flesh, I, I would suppose, I, I would argue. So, and that's kind of the same thing going on here for the, for the disciples to be expecting a different kind of savior. And he withdraws a stone's throw away. You know how they figure out it was a, a stone's throw? Apparently they were throwing rocks at him while he's praying. <laughs> if Jesus was maybe throwing rocks at them to keep him awake, it would have been more effective, but he had other things on his radar that day. So he's close, enough to, he's, he's close enough for them to kind of keep tabs on, but far enough away to not know what he's doing. He kneels down to pray, which is common for us, not for the Jews. The Jewish, the Jewish people would stand to pray. So the, the commentators say that his kneeling demonstrates the intensity of, this, of what he's feeling, the agony of what he's feeling, and the intensity of his prayers. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup. So I have the question, your B, letter B in your handout. Jesus prays about the suffering, his suffering as a cup. What does it mean for Jesus to drink the cup of wrath to the dregs? So we get two pictures, Psalm 75, also Isaiah 51. God's wrath is described as a, as a cup of wrath. And it's poured out 
to the dregs, which if you know what dregs are, if you've ever borrowed some of Dave Brown's homebrew, <laughs> and you get to the bottom and that little, like when the yeast settles at the bottom. Uh, so it's, so, we, so the idea is, or for the sacristans, you know, it's like the, the people's backwash at the bottom of the, <laughs> was that a bad marketing tool for the sacristans or the chalice? There's actually, there's no backwash in there. Come on, people. Um, but the idea is to, to, the, the, the cup being at the, to drink the cup to the dregs is to have nothing, all, all the wrath is gone. So it's like the wrath of God is taken like a bucket and dumped on Jesus, and then they keep, they keep hitting the bottom of the ketchup bottle to get it all out on Jesus. So if, all, if, the, if the full wrath of God is poured out to the dregs on Jesus, then what does that mean is left for you now? Nothing. That's the key here. Don't derail me, Dennis. I'm on a roll. Okay. Didn't it? I didn't want to. Uh, no, go on. It's too late. You already interrupted me. No, I thought maybe, you know, they've seen through this three years, they've seen Jesus and he's been, you know, Mr. Mr. Confident and, you know, gets up and stills the storm and all this. And if they saw him in the garden on his knees, wetting drops of blood, Maybe they thought he was weak and that then maybe he's not going to be the Messiah. You know, yeah. That, that they, didn't want to, they didn't want to see him weak. So you think that's why he was praying that they be spared for temptation? Dennis is saying that the, he doesn't want, you're saying that he didn't want them to see him in that state? Yeah. By they see, ah, I see, good, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, if they're looking at Jesus with a certain messianic expectations and he's like taken down to his knees and sweating drops of blood, he's, he's not being the power Messiah that, that they might've been expecting, good, yeah. For the, so the, the, cup, the cup of wrath that Jesus is praying to pass is in fact the cup that's poured out on him. The wrath of God is always described this way. It's poured out on Jesus and not us. But now notice there's the cup we didn't catch it because I drag out this Bible study too long, but like it's, it's the same chapter where there was another cup involved and it had blood in it. So, so now what's happened is Jesus takes a full cup of God's wrath. And this is like, it's kind of a poetic thing where now when we drink from the cup, in fact, this is why it's at first Corinthians, it puts it this way. When we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're receiving the body, we're receiving the blood of Christ that he wins on the cross. So he, he receives the full wrath of God in our place. And therefore, when we drink from the cup, it's now receiving the full mercy and forgiveness of God. It's like this exchange that happens even with the cups. Um, the, the picture of the chalice I got in there, I'm thinking about investing in for our uh, sacristans to kind of make them pay more attention. <laughs> Two digs in the sacristans and one Bible study. Let us see. Oh, I did that one. When we, we, drink the, when we drink from the cup that he instituted, we proclaim the Lord's death. All right, now here's something big I want to talk about. In verse 43, so he, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And that's a hard thing to work around even for us to, to contemplate the Trinity. Jesus is God. He has all the knowledge of God. He is omniscient. He's, he, he's praying yet to God the Father about his will as if it's different than Jesus. Well, how does that work out? I don't know. It's the mystery of the Trinity, it, but we just have it here and we confess it as it's been given to us. Jesus 
did not want to do this for his, like, because it was going to be painful, and yet he realized what God is going to be doing through it, and so let the Lord's will be done. Then in verse 43 and 44, these two verses, I'm going to, I'm going to shake your world, are not in all of the earliest manuscripts. This, this is a brief word on what's called textual criticism. Have you heard of textual criticism? It's different than higher criticism. So that's so kind of like dispel this misunderstanding now. So higher criticism was a big problem in like 1950s through the 80s. Missouri Synod came to a head in 1974 where people were saying the Bible is not all God's word, but it contains God's word. And so when the Bible doesn't, doesn't line up with what we want it to say, like it doesn't match up with our expectations of science, like we'll disregard that. So six-day creation, out. Jonah the big fish, out. Any resurrection from the dead, out. Those things don't happen. But the first can be last, the last shall be first. Those kinds of teachings we can retain. And that's probably, that seems like something God would say. But the miracles, nah, that's out. That's higher criticism. We, that is, we are higher than the Bible and we can criticize what's in it. Textual criticism is, that's not our position, by the way. Text, textual criticism, which we are very honest about, unlike the, the like Islam and the Mormons, they, they essentially confess that the Bible that they have, the, so the Quran and the Book of Mormon, have come out of heaven on golden plates. There's a lot of parallel between Islam and, and Mormonism, by the way, in that, in that regard. Um, these like golden plates, and then all of the translations from those golden plates, even to this day, continue to be divinely inspired. So that the copies of the copies of the copies are, are, are perfect, because God wouldn't allow any kind of like anything else, which is, which is objectively false. Like it, you can find older manuscripts. I mean, Francis, Dr. Francisco is obviously the, the guru on Islam uh, but he can, like manuscripts upon manuscript errors and variants in the history of Islam and the Book of Mormon, it's just a lie that they would say anything else. But you could see the temptation for us to say, well, no, the, the translation of the Bible that we have now is very, it's, 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 it's exactly the same thing as the first century Bible. Because if I, I'm worried that if I, if I start questioning, if I, if I start allowing for there to be variants in the texts, I'm worried that I'm going to lose the credibility of the entire thing. Because that's the way we treat people. If someone tells you a little white lie, you start to distrust everything they say, right? So, what, so when we look at the scriptures, we're actually, we're, all we're saying is, we recognize the Bible did not come out of heaven. It didn't fall as written by God, worked through men to get the scriptures that we have now. Then it needed to be translated or copied. And it was being copied by men often in the dark, in hiding during persecution by candlelight, with eyes without uh, progressive lenses. So you have, you have translation, like little mistakes here and there. But it's never like this, this manuscript said Jesus rose from the dead, and this one doesn't. It's nothing like that. It's always like, this one says Jesus Christ. This one says Christ Jesus. This one, this one spells John with two news. This one's got one new, like the N. So it's like, these are meaningless variants. But they're often cited by like Bart Ehrman and other atheist biblical scholars to make a case that the Bible is not reliable. 
And so you'll, if you turn on the History Channel around Christmas, and you'll see, well, uh, like all these conspiracy theories about the virgin birth, same thing with Easter around the resurrection of Jesus. They're always going to point, they're going to quote Bart Ehrman, and they're going to talk about, well, obviously we can't just trust the Bible because it's full of errors. And they just take that as an assumption. What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by error? This one says Jesus was born of a virgin. This one says Jesus was not born of a virgin. That's a pretty big discrepancy there. That's not the case. Those kind of things are, those contradictions are not there. Uh, again, there's these, it's all word, variant, spelling, spelling, all the things that we expect when, there's, when they're being copied by hand. There's a couple of slightly bigger things. Um, and the, it's things like John 8, um, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus famously writes in the dirt. If you'll notice in your Bibles, it says, earliest manuscripts do not include this, these verses. It's consistent with Jesus that he would have said such a thing, but the, it's, the fact is, the earliest manuscripts don't have it. Now, what that means, remember, like the, the guys write the, the initial Bible and they're, they're copying it and years go by. Obviously, the early manuscripts start to deteriorate. They get lost, they get thrown away, whatever, burned. And we're left with the later manuscripts, but they're copied with such, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Fidelity? They're copied a lot, is, the, is what I'm trying to say. They're copied a lot. Tons and tons of copies. So we've got access to these early, and they can do like, what's it called, carbon dating, and, get, and find the timing of all these manuscripts so that you can know this manuscript of John was written in whatever. I mean, it's one of the later texts. So like a lot of Paul, Matthew, let's say, written in the, in the mid to late 60s, perhaps. So we've got these early manuscripts from like, let's say, 75 AD or something like that. And it doesn't have the end of Mark. You don't have, so some of these early manuscripts of different texts are missing individual things where the, the copies that came 100 years later, everything lines up except it's missing like these, these couple verses. Now, what happened there? Was it an oversight? Did... Did the, in some cases, did the later guys try to editorialize? So the, did they add in something? And a lot of times the way that the later biblical scholars start to look at it and say, okay, is this, if it's not in the earliest manuscripts and it's added later, does it seem inconsistent? Uh, does it seem like having the angel appear to Jesus and most importantly, him sweating drops of blood, that's... It's got this a little bit kind of a different picture of what's, than what's happening uh, in Jesus's humanity up to this point, maybe. Certainly, we can say that it, it's certainly possible that it happened. In fact, I would say very likely that it happened. But we're also just honest that these two verses were not in the earliest manuscripts. They're not in all the earliest manuscripts. They are in a lot of the earliest manuscripts, but not in all of them. Same with the end of Mark. Have you ever read the end of Mark? The end of Mark is precious to Lutherans because we quote, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, whoever is not believed will be condemned. That's in Mark 16. Problem is, if you keep reading, it's like the disciples are like holding snakes and, and getting bit and not die. There's like some, so there's some weird stuff happening at the end of Mark. It's not in any of the earliest manuscripts. Again, it doesn't mean it's not legit. And it doesn't mean that it's, it's wrong or even unfaithful. It just, we're just simply honestly saying it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. So all, we're just simply being honest about the human element in the scriptures. And even so, it doesn't, it doesn't undermine our trust that the Bible is 
faithful to what the original manuscripts said, especially regarding the most important doctrines, the resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, the clear, all these clear teachings of Jesus. There's, there's, no, there's no discrepancies that matter, okay? I just thought that was an interesting time to bring that up to prep you for the inevitable special that's coming on the History Channel. And when you start watching it and you hear these things to try to discredit the Bible, know that that's what they're talking about. It's called textual criticism and they're, they're intentionally trying to deceive you. Um, any questions on textual criticism real quick? Anything that I cause you great despair? If you want to follow up with me? No? Okay. So uh, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Angels are popping up all over the place in Luke. They're singing, remember, with the shepherds. The, Luke's are, the, the angels are going to be there at the resurrection. So for there to be, and, and Jesus is talking about the angels rejoicing in heaven over sinners who repent. It's, it, Luke is a very angelic text. So this, again, it's not unlikely. But when it says the angel from heaven strengthened him, it's the same thing the, angel, the, the angels do to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. Remember, they had to strengthen him. But in what way did the angels strengthen? It doesn't say. I used to always think that they, the angels showed up with like Gatorade and a granola bar. And that would make sense. He's sweating drops of blood. He's, he's stressed. He's probably hungry. They're getting him ready. If you're getting ready for a big game event, well, you're in a carbo load, you know? But that's, so what does angel mean? Messenger. So what's the primary thing that the angels are likely doing for Jesus? They're giving him, exactly. He's, quote, he's quoting the scriptures back to Jesus, giving him this uh, extreme confidence in who he is, reminding him of who he is, that God, in fact, does love him, that he, you, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So quoting again what God the Father has said about Jesus. I would argue that's probably the way in which it wasn't just in body that he was being strengthened, but the, in confidence of his mission, you could say. Um, and then being in agony, it's the only time in the Bible that this, this word for agony occurs here. It just shows the, the way, the, 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 the level and the dimension of his suffering. It's uniquely given to Jesus in this situation, this, this word for agony. He prays earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood, which is apparently a medical condition. Your foot, your notes, hematidrosis, it's technically called, when blood, can, when blood can mix with the sweat. So it's not, again, it's not unlikely in that regard. It's just, we're just being honest about the textual criticism possibility there. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. For sleeping for sorrow? Like, what, are you, what does that even mean? Why were they sorrowful about? Jesus isn't dead yet. So the word for sorrow here can be translated as grief or great affliction. So that's why I'm thinking it's not that, I can, I can imagine them sleeping for what we understand to be sorrow after Jesus dies. But now it's more like this, this growing tension for what, they don't know exactly what. Something big is about to happen and it's wearing them down. Maybe it's over the dread of what's about to come, especially if they think, remember they're getting their swords ready. They think they're about to go into Jerusalem and maybe they're going to start fighting. And these guys aren't soldiers. They're fishermen. It sounds like they're just emotionally exhausted. Emotionally exhausted, yeah. So, like, so, so who knows like, 
the nature of this uh, sorrow. But yeah, again, raising of Lazarus had just happened. They've seen a lot of crazy stuff. They're getting their swords ready. They're, they're, I, I picture it like on Lord of the Rings, like in every one before a big battle, you got the guys kind of, you see the nervousness of the guys trying to teach little kids how to swing a sword because they're about to get killed by orcs. I picture that with like, that's how Peter is out there. He's a fisherman. What does he have? A, a, what do you call it, a fillet knife? Or like, what kind of knife does he have? Apparently sharp because he cuts off Malchus's ear here in just a second. Why are you sleeping? He says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, with a temptation toward doubt, unbelief, perhaps especially for Peter, the denial um, to deny, the temptation to deny Jesus. That's certainly a big temptation that, that Peter's about to face. I'm not gonna have time to get through. I was hoping to get all the way through 22, but I, I digressed too many times. Are there any quick questions there? I've got like one minute. We can, we can run. Yes, ma'am. Jesus has been telling them all along he's going to be lifted up. Right. So how does that play into this? Yeah, Jackie said Jesus has been telling them all along that he's going to be lifted up. Or even more clear, it's like with, with Matthew 16, he says it in, in Luke 9. He says it multiple times that the Son of Man is going to have to suffer, be handed, betray, betrayed, suffer, be killed, and on the third day rise. So it's like, they knew that was kind of coming, they did, but they didn't get it at the cross. So maybe you're right. Maybe they're, they are thinking, maybe this is when he's going to die. Is this what he mean by suffering and die? But although those earlier texts say they, they, they didn't remember that until after the resurrection. They didn't put all that together. But surely it's taken a toll on them. Um, I think that's all we can get to today. So, so it's, we'll pick up with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the new year. So the... What's coming, there's not too much of Luke left. It's a lot of crucifixion. So we get to all the trials of Jesus. Um, it's so funny, we'll be hearing about Herod at the crucifixion when we're hearing about Herod, his dad, during uh, the Christmas narratives, you know, or, or especially with the Magi and when we get into Epiphany. Um, so this is the, the Herod's dad from the trials. So um, some more good apologetic stuff with Malchus having his ear. Why Malchus? Why these specifics? So we're, I would argue we're getting into the, the very best part of Luke, the crucifixion and resurrection of, of Jesus. Thanks for your patience. Again, Pastor Schumacher will be starting in the names, uh, many names of Jesus for Bible study here next week. We go forth in our Lord's name. Thanks be to God.